Well, if you want to turn, I'll invite you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11, our sermon text is uh, verses 12 through 25. And as is our custom, I'll invite you to stand for the reading of God's holy word this morning. Mark chapter 11, verses 12 through 25. Give ear to the reading of God's holy word. It says, On the following day when they came to Bethany, he was hungry and seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, he said to it May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple, and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. And they passed by in the morning. They saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, man does not live by bread alone, but by what? Every word that proceeds from the mouth of our God. Let's pray once again and ask him to bless his word to us. Heavenly Father, we once again, even as our elder uh, Larry has just prayed, we pray that you would teach us your word. We know that on our own we cannot understand rightly your word. That you have. We have to be taught by you. And so we ask that you once again would work in us by your Holy Spirit that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear great things from your word. We thank you for your word, and we ask that you would make it bear fruit. We thank you, as Isaiah even said this morning, that your word never fails to bear fruit or accomplish that for which you send it. And we pray that it would bear much fruit in our lives, for we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, a couple weeks ago, as we were going through Mark and got into chapter 11, we looked at the first 11 verses of this chapter, and we, it's often called the triumphal entry of Jesus, where Jesus comes into Jerusalem as the, as the reigning king or the coming king. Uh, he quotes, we often quote the, the writers of the Gospels do, Zechariah chapter 9, verse 7, where it says that he was coming, to behold your king coming, righteous and having salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So Jesus came as king, but he came in, in humility as well. Uh, he came as a king, but he didn't come on a war horse. He came on a donkey, on the colt of a donkey. He wasn't making a show of force, even though he was making a show, uh, a, a d- display of his royal authority as the one who was to come. And yet we go from Jesus, you know, kind of gentle Jesus, meek and mild, coming on the foal of a donkey in humility and the crowd saying Hosanna. And, you know, it's easy to get the wrong idea from that. It's easy to kind of think of, of Jesus in that text as kind of a toothless lion 
who couldn't possibly harm a, a flea and, and wouldn't, you know, he's just, he's so gentle. And the scripture does say he's gentle, right? But it still says he's king. And we come to our text here this morning where Jesus makes it very clear that he really is the king. That just because he came in humility the first time around doesn't mean that he's any less the king than he is. He still exercises his royal kingly prerogatives. And he does it in a couple ways, doesn't he? What's the first thing we see in our text? It, it kind of seems almost jarring a little bit. He, he looks for fruit on a tree and he curses it. And as we see, that tree drops dead within a day, withers up from its roots. And then he goes into the temple and what do you see? And what's, what's the very first thing Mark says he does? I mean, Mark, everything's fast, right? Everything's immediately, it's in a hurry. There's, there's no, it's almost, you almost picture him as not even saying hi to anybody. He walks in the building and starts throwing tables around and throwing people out. He's like the bouncer of the temple. He's casting people, people out. He's flipping everybody's tables and chairs over. Not, not what you want to do. You know, if you have somebody over to your house, you don't expect them to do that. But we're going to see that they were in his house. It was just the other way around. So, and the last thing we see in our text again is, G, is Jesus, you know, that with the disciples, they, Mark kind of brings up the fig tree again. He says, look, you remember what he said? Well, look what happened. Those weren't empty words. Those, those words didn't fall to the ground. That tree really did uh, become in such a way that no one ever ate fruit from it, from it again. So the first thing that we're going to look at in our text is found in verses 12 to 14, and that's Jesus cursing the fig tree. Jesus cursing the fig tree. Look at that, those verses 12 to 14. Mark says, on the following day, this is the day after the triumphal entry, when Jesus came into Jerusalem, he came back. He's on his way back. When they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. For it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And then Mark adds, And his disciples heard it. It was probably intended for them to hear. The tree, the tree didn't obviously hear it, but the disciples did. Now the, the first thing that might catch your attention, or that I hope catches your attention, but it's easy to read right past it, is the simple and profound fact that the Lord Jesus Christ was hungry in verse 12. Mark kind of just says it as an aside. He's hungry, so he looks for something to eat off this tree. And we should be careful to remember and affirm that the very Son of God himself uh, really did become flesh and dwell among us, John 1.14. It's one of those amazing truths. It's easy for us to kind of, you know, it's easy for us to kind of lose the punch of it. We, we aren't as startled by it as we probably should be. The Chalcedonian Creed, we've spent some time studying that recently. It says of Christ that he is, quote, one in the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, at once complete in Godhead and complete in manhood, truly God and truly man, consisting also of a reasonable body, soul and body of one substance with the Father as regards his Godhead and at the same time of one substance with us as regards his manhood, like us in all respects apart from sin. Sometimes, you know, I always say this from time to time that in, us, in our conservative Christian circles, we tend to spend most of our time fighting for, and rightly so, the deity of Christ. That he's fully God. He's not like the Jehovah's Witnesses try to tell you, God with a little g. He's almost God. There's no such thing as almost infinite. He's God, or he's nothing at all. But at the same time, we have to be careful that we affirm and uphold his true humanity as well. 
that the, that the infinite Son of God did take on flesh and really was hungry at times and really was tempted at times and really felt pain and really died a, a real death for our sins. It wasn't a phantasm. It wasn't an illusion of some kind. All this Jesus did for your salvation and mine. The one through whom all things were made willingly became flesh and was made like us in every respect apart from sin. Hebrews 2.17 All that he did so that he, he came to know suffering, temptation, hunger, sorrow, and death in our place for our salvation. These things are, are they're un, they're incomprehensible to us. If you're sitting there thinking, I, I can't get my mind wrapped around that, you're in good company. Every other believing person in the world, every Christian in the world for, throughout all time has felt the same way, has come to that truth and been pulled up short and faced to just look at, at, at the, what the Bible says about Jesus with awe and with great reverence. He came to know all that. Such things should fill us with awe and love for our Savior to think of, but we can't even comprehend what that means, that the infinite Son of God would, would humble himself and take on flesh and go through all these things in our place. So Jesus was hungry, and he saw from a distance, right, a fig tree. He knew what kind of tree it was. He, he, knew, he knew trees. He wasn't uh, ignorant of those things. And he saw a, in, in the distance a fig tree in leaf. You know, we, we just had a tree removed from our front of our house, uh, finally, that's been dead as a doornail since before we ever looked at the place. And it's just all mangled and gnarled and dead. And all, the only thing you ever saw living in it was a woodpecker. Uh, no, fruit, no fruit at all. No, you know, barely a leaf to be seen. But this tree was full of leaves. It was full of leaves. And so what does he do? He goes to see if there's anything on it. He's hungry. Hey, there's a fig tree. It should, maybe it'll have some fruit on it. And, and Mark does add, it was not the season in verse 13. It was not the season for figs. So what does Jesus do? You know, what, got the old arm bracelets. And what would Jesus do? Well, he would curse a tree. He cursed the tree. Now, that's, that's the way that, that Peter describes it later on in the text. He said, the, the tree you curse, look at it. Peter, Peter picked up on what Jesus was saying. Jesus wasn't just disappointed and expressing disappointment. He cursed the tree. It, it's just what it sounded like. He said, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. You know, again, this doesn't seem like gentle Jesus meek and mild so far in our text. He's cursing th trees, throwing tables, throwing people out of the, the temple. Now, some people have found this, this part of, of Mark's gospel a little bit disturbing. It's almost like Jesus is being unkind to some poor innocent tree. You know, it's not even the season for, for figs. And here's Jesus, you know, dumb tree. Hope no one ever eats, you know, no, no one's ever going to eat fruit from you again. How dare you not have, have figs? It almost makes, you know, you can be forgiven, I think, for in some, sense, in some sense kind of thinking to yourself, it almost seems like Jesus is being rash and unreasonable. You know, his, his reaction seems a little overboard to our sensitive tree-hugging ears. You know, we, we can't imagine that anything could possibly be, be this way with, with Christ, especially when it wasn't time for figs. Now, the presence of, of leaves, a tree in full leaf, I think, is, is the point here. It looked like a tree that should have had figs on it. The appearance of the tree belied the fact that it, did, it had, no, had no fruit. Now, it wasn't the season for harvesting figs. I think the point that Mark is making here is it wasn't really the time when you would pick them. They wouldn't, they wouldn't have been ripe if they had been, had been some fruit on it, but there should have been something on it, even if they weren't ripe, even if they weren't in such a condition that you normally would, would want to eat them. You, know? you ever eat a piece of fruit that's not quite ready? 
It's not the most pleasant thing in the world, but if you're hungry enough, you'll do it. You know, you might eat that, that uh, green banana, even if it wouldn't be the way you would normally want it to be. Well, you know, the complete and utter absence of fruit, I think, would have been very out of the ordinary for a tree full of leaves, for a tree that was in full leaf. Either way, the Lord of the harvest, Jesus Christ, has the right to expect fruit when he comes. And as we're going to see, this fig tree was a foreshadowing of what was going to come in the rest of this passage and beyond as well. So we've seen the, the cursing of the tree. Now we're going to see the cleansing, the cleansing of the temple. Look at verses 15 to 16. Mark says, And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons or doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. Now that last part, it's not carrying anything. It's carrying like merchandise. They're carrying things to sell and to buy, that kind of a thing. Now, notice again that, that uh, mo- mo- most of, if not, not quite all, but most of what happens in the last six chapters of Mark's gospel happens in one place. And that place is the temple. Over and over again in these chapters, Mark brings up they're at the temple, in the temple, in the temple. It's, it's where Jesus went. It's, it's not uh, an accident that you know, Jesus, when he came to Jerusalem, he didn't go to the palace. Yeah, he came as king, but he didn't go to the palace. He went first place he went was the temple. When he came back the next day, where did he go? He went right back to the temple. The temple is where most of the action happens in these last six six chapters. Now, true to Mark's style of everything being in a hurry and being the gospel of, of action, the first thing we see him doing is driving people out of the temple, throwing people out. It's it's almost hard to get your mind wrapped around uh, that, that image of Jesus throwing people out and, and, and that kind of a thing. He's, who is he throwing out, though? He's throwing out people who were selling and buying the various animals that were needed for the sacrifices there uh, for the services in the temple. Now, what time of year was this? Passover was approaching. So when Passover happened, you know, it's, it's kind of like if you've ever lived in a college town. When school is out, the town shrinks. You know, the businesses are all slower. When school comes back in, when August rolls back around, all of a sudden there's thousands more people in the town. Well, that's kind of like this, only on on steroids. People are coming from all over the world to come back to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. So there are travelers coming from all over. The, the, The population of Jerusalem had exploded, had just grown enormously during this time. Now, you can imagine traveling back then, if you think traveling these days is hard, imagine traveling with either on foot or maybe on horseback or some such thing. And if you're traveling from a distance, you're probably not going to be very enthusiastic about bringing animals with you for sacrifice. It's just one more thing, one more difficulty for your journey. And so what would they do? You know, some of the people that that were around Jerusalem, they saw it as business opportunity. You know, nothing wrong with that per se, that, hey, don't bring all your stuff with you. We have stuff here. And we'll, we'll sell it to you. Well, nothing wrong so far unless you're price gouging, unless you're selling things at an exorbitant price to take advantage of those who have no other way. I mean, what if you, what if you couldn't get an animal? What if you couldn't get a lamb or a dove if you were too poor? Like, you, you had no sacrifice. To them, that was, that was a, that was, to say it was a bad thing would be an understatement. That, that, was, that was kind of, in their minds, in a lot of ways, that was kind of the way of forgiveness. Now, those things never... Hebrew says the blood of bulls and goats never took away sins. The only sacrifice that ever actually took away and covered sin was that of Christ himself. 
But those things were a picture of Christ's sacrifice. Which they were supposed to, that's the, the purpose they were supposed to serve. But you know, imagine the, the, the abuses that would have been going on in this buying and selling uh, in, in the temple. People saw it as a, a way to make a fast buck. Probably didn't charge a very fair price. You know, Jesus called them, accused them of turning the temple into a den of robbers, which probably implies, I think, rather strongly they weren't being fair uh, just, just to begin with. Now, um, notice the problem. Is the problem that they were buying and selling, per se, is that the main issue? Jesus is just anti-capitalist and you're supposed to give things away? Is, that, is this a socialist temple? Is that the problem? You were, we're all supposed to share, you know, mi casa, su casa, that kind of a thing. Um, no, no, he wasn't, it wasn't that, but where were they selling them? And how were they selling them? They were most certainly ripping people off. That's why he calls them robbers. But where were they selling them? Inside the temple. Inside the actual temple. They were, they were turning it into a market. They saw the temple as a means of extorting money from weary travelers who were coming to worship the Lord. That, they were turning God's house into a storefront. You know, so Jesus, Jesus' reaction may take us a little bit aback. We, we may read it and think, wow, Jesus seems like an angry man right now. Sometimes anger is, is not, you know, anger in, in and of itself, anger is not sinful. One of the Psalms says, be angry and do not sin. Anger is not inherently sinful. It can be sinful or it cannot. Sometimes to sin, not to be angry. In this case, it would have been a sin for the Son of God, for Jesus Christ, to not be angry at what was being done in the temple. He saw wickedness in his, in his house, and he wasn't going to, to stand for it. So he, he throws people out. He throws, throws people's tables over, their chairs. People are sitting on chairs to sell things. He comes up, basically kicks the chairs out from under him. Like, go home. Get out of here. Out of my house. This isn't your house. This is my house. My house, my rules, Right? And then Mark says in verse 17 that he was teaching them. It almost seems like one of these things doesn't belong. You know, he, he's throwing tables around and, and throwing people out, and all of a sudden he's teaching them. And it's almost as if, you know, you ever heard a teacher in high school or college say, you know, now that I've got your attention, they do something to get your attention. Drop a chair, throw an eraser. We had a teacher used to throw the blackboard eraser. If they saw somebody falling asleep, they would throw it at them. Like, now that I've got your attention, you know, listen up. So he's teaching them, and what does he say? He quotes from the, the prophecy of Isaiah, doesn't he? He says, it is, is it not written? That's kind of an insulting kind of way of saying, you should know better. Doesn't Isaiah say this? You know, he says, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you, to rebuke, you have made it a den of robbers. Big difference between a house of prayer and a den of robbers. Now remember, as we looked at Isaiah 56 earlier in the service, the last part of that chapter was a, was a pretty severe rebuke of the religious leaders of Israel and even singles out in some ways in other parts of scripture the scribes in particular God's house was supposed to be a house of prayer for all peoples or all nations and as, as Isaiah said in that chapter that, that went for the foreigner or the Gentile that went for the eunuch people that you normally wouldn't expect to see in the temple and he says you know God's house was supposed to be a place where even Gentiles could seek God. You know, we don't often think of it that way. The Messiah was supposed to be a light to the Gentiles. Uh, Abraham, what was the promise to Abraham? And you and your seed shall all the nations be blessed. The gospel was never about 
being restricted to one nation. That was never the point, even back in the Old Testament. And in the, in the temple, there was a place called the Court of the Gentiles. I won't give you a, an architectural uh, lesson here. I don't have any overhead uh, things to, to look at. But there was a court, a very large area of the court, that was reserved for them. Now, the, now if you were a Gentile in that day, you could, you could become a proselyte of, 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 of the Jewish religion. You could become a follower of Yahweh. But, you know, you couldn't go past that that courtyard until you were a full a full member but there was a courtyard there designed for you to be able to go to the temple even if there was a uh, you know a, a, a limit to how far you could go you were supposed to be allowed in well apparently people were doing all this buying and selling in that courtyard now think about that this is supposed to be a place for gentiles to come seek the lord but what's happening one people are being taken advantage of in it by by buying and selling and two their space is being taken up by a flea market, by some kind of a marketplace. It's being abused, to say the least. Now, think about the picture that Jesus paints of what they were doing, a den of robbers. That's a pretty violent image, isn't it? Now, robbery is not just theft. Robbery is usually, you know, in our day, at, at, you know, a violent theft. It involves a threat of violence or actual violence, who was the one in our text committing violence? On the surface, it sounds like it's Jesus. I mean, he's throwing people out, flipping tables and chairs over. And, uh, but who's really doing the violence here, Jesus or the sellers? The sellers, the people that are ripping people off and abusing God's house. What do robbers do? They lie in wait. They take advantage of the helpless. They prey upon the helpless, those who can't do anything for themselves. That's what they were doing in God's house. Jesus had every right to be angry. Of all the places on earth at this time, what should have been the safest place imaginable? God's house. And they had made it a den of robbers, a place of violence and, and theft. And I think this should be a reminder to us in our day that we in the church should be very careful about how we conduct ourselves in God's house. Now, I don't mean that this building is God's house. right? There is no, there is no holy building in and of itself inherently. This, this building... Uh, we use once one day out of the week. It's not doesn't turn into something else. Uh, there's nothing particularly special about this building, even though we we're, we appreciate having it to meet in. No church building, uh, no matter how plain like this one or how ornate, the nicest church you've ever been to, is inherently holy. But the place is the house of God when the people of God are in it. You are the house of God. The people of God are really the house and habitation. Of God, And so we as the church have to be careful that we aren't in the business of taking advantage of people. I know it's easy to say, oh, of course we don't possibly do that, right? Uh, there, there, are, uh, there are business aspects to any church. I know some folks take, a, take offense to that. Somebody has to pay the light bills. Somebody has to pay the pastor. Somebody has to pay for all kinds of things. There are business aspects to a church, just like there are business aspects to a family. You have to pay the bills at your home. You have to go buy food and all kinds of things. The house has to get maintained. But we are not in business to be a business. There's a, a fine line between having business aspects and being a business. We should be about making disciples unto the glory of Christ, not about making money. The gospel is not something to be marketed. And sinners and saints alike are not to be seen as or treated as consumers or as a market share. Marketing is not evangelism. 
It must be said that many churches in our land today stand in dire need of having a table or two flipped over, if we're honest. By God's grace, I hope that this church never comes to fit that description. May we be instead a house of prayer. Are we a house of prayer? Is this church characterized? Are we as a church, as the people of God, are we characterized by prayer? Are we a church where sinners can come seek God and hear the gospel? Like the court of the Gentiles is a picture of. Do we pray for each other? Do we pray with each other on a regular basis? We should. Notice here in our text that Jesus is acting as the Lord of the temple and the master of his house. I think that's another thing that it's easy to, to forget that. Whose house was this? It was his house. Again, his house, his rules, those buyers and sellers, those chief priests and scribes were abusing his house and his people. And the temple itself, what is the temple a picture of? I should ask it differently, make it easier. Who is the temple a picture of? Christ. He's the one who became flesh and tabernacled among us. John 1 14. The temple was a picture of Christ. The temple itself, the sacrificial system, the priests, the sacrifices, all of it was to point to Christ. Remember Jesus said, you know, tear this temple down and in three days I'll raise it up again. And everybody lost their minds. And, but, he said, but he was talking about the temple of his body. He's the temple. And so when they were abusing the temple and abusing his people in the temple, they were abusing a picture of him. Something that was meant to point to and was fulfilled in him. They didn't respect the house because they didn't respect the house's owner or who it even pointed forward to. That's what these people were abusing was a picture of Christ himself. So it's no wonder when Mark tells us in verse 18, it says, And the chief priests and the scribes heard it. They heard what Jesus said and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. It's clear from their, from their actions in the temple, they didn't actually, they revered the temple, quote unquote, right? It was like their lucky rabbit, a big lucky rabbit's foot, they, they treated it like. Uh, but they really disrespected it entirely. They, the way they treated it uh, bears out in the fact that they treated Christ, who was the real temple, even worse. All their appearance of religiosity wasn't worth anything. Well, the last thing we're going to see is uh, praying in faith, verses 20 to 25. Uh, look at verses 20 to 21. Mark writes, as they were passing, as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. So Jesus cursed that tree and the very next day it was withered up and dead. They, they recognized that the tree was the same tree that Jesus had cursed. Now, this is a miraculous event, right? Trees don't, you know, they die, but they don't die overnight. Even the worst thing that happens to a tree doesn't, doesn't cause it to do that. And what does this tell us? It's a picture of the sure judgment of Christ. His warnings must be heeded because his judgment is sure to come. His word of warning and judgment uh, should be taken for what, it's, for what he says. If he says something, it's going to come to pass. If he warns of something, we should take it seriously. Now, the fact that, that the account of Jesus cleansing the temple is kind of bookended by this account of the fig tree is, there, is a hint. I think it's a hint to us at how we're supposed to understand both. Each thing kind of illustrates or, or makes plain what the other thing was that happens in our text. We are to understand the one in light of the other. 
for us to rightly understand the fig tree and not get all bent out of shape and offended that Jesus cursed some poor innocent tree and made it die, we have to understand what was going to happen in the temple and the verses that are kind of sandwiched between it and vice versa. You know, in both cases, uh, you know, the fig tree is kind of a picture of what Jesus saw at the temple, of the unfruitfulness he saw going on at the temple. And in both cases, he would not stand for such unfruitfulness. One commentator makes the following observation that I think you, you might find helpful. He says, the prophets frequently, the Old Testament, the, the prophets frequently spoke of the fig tree in referring to Israel's status before God. He gives a few Old Testament passages. I won't read them, but Jeremiah 8.13, uh, Jeremiah 29, Hosea 9, uh, uh, Joel chapter 1, Micah chapter 7. It's, it's a common analogy in the Old Testament was the fig tree, among other things, olive trees, fig trees. He says, in, in this context, the fig tree, oh, he says, the destruction of the fig tree is associated with judgment. Destroying a fig tree in the Old Testament prophets is a picture of judgment. It's a very particular Sign. He says, in this context, the fig tree symbolizes Israel in Jesus' day. And what happens to the tree symbolizes the terrible fate that inevitably waited, awaited Jerusalem. So that fig tree is kind of like a three-dimensional parable. It's a picture uh, illustrating the authority of the king and the judgment that will befall those who reject Christ and demonstrate that rejection by not bearing the fruits of repentance. That's what's going on in our text, if sometime I'll invite you to read this on your own, but Jeremiah chapter 8, the entire chapter reads like a commentary on this text. When you, when you read it, Jeremiah chapter 8, it speaks of God's just judgment against Judah and Jerusalem, and particularly his judgment on the scribes in verse 8, Jeremiah 8.8. 8. He mentions the scribes with lying pens by name. They claimed to have the law of the Lord, verse 8, on their side. The scribes were saying, we have the law of the Lord for us. We have, this is what we have, it's our thing, right? All the while they had actually, according to the prophet in verse 9, they had rejected the word of the Lord. They treated the law like a lucky rabbit's foot again. And it says that they were accused of healing the wounds of God's people lightly, in verse 11, saying to them, peace, peace, where there is no peace. In other words, God had often in the Old Testament warned of judgment to come. But what did, what did they do? Did they sound the alarm? Did they call to the people to, and themselves to repentance? No. It's all good. Everything's good. Peace, peace. Nobody does that today, right? Same, same thing as it happened back then. It still happens in our day as well. We have many, many in the quote ministry that, that say peace, peace, where there is no peace. Jeremiah 8.13, this is what it says. The Lord says, when I would gather them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine, nor figs on the fig tree, even the leaves are withered. And what I gave them has passed away from them. It's a picture of judgment. And the same picture is going on in Mark chapter 11. The temple that they had abused so badly would finally be taken away from them entirely. Just like that withered fig tree in A.D. 70. When the Roman army came in and sacked Jerusalem, they leveled the temple, and it's never been rebuilt since. The temple has been gone all these years. Now, the temple was obsolete, wasn't it? Once Christ had come, especially when he had died, what happened when Christ died? That veil in the temple was torn in two, showing that it, it, it served its purpose, and it was not long for this earth. The true temple of God, the true priesthood, and the true Lamb of God, who took away the sins of the world, came finally in the person and work of Jesus Christ. 
Now, the last thing in our text might seem like, a, like it doesn't fit with the text. Maybe you're wondering why I went all the way to verse 25 uh, in, in the sermon text. Uh, but it really isn't out of place at all if you think about it. What did Jesus say his house was supposed to be? A house of prayer. So what does Jesus do? When, when, the, when, when Peter, on behalf of the rest of the twelve, says, Oh my, look, look at this tree you cursed. What happened? It's amazing. What does Jesus do? He gives them a lesson on prayer. So you go from the house of prayer to instructions on prayer. And in verses 22 to 25, he tells Peter, Have faith in God. Now, you could stop there and say, what's he saying? Who's the one that cursed the tree? Jesus. What happened to the tree? It withered up from the, from the roots. What's Jesus saying about Jesus to Peter? You know who you're talking to, right? Have faith in God. Me. I think that's what he's saying. Because what did he say? In other words, if, why are you surprised that something I said came to, ha- came to pass? Why would, that, why would that surprise you? All this time you've been with me, you don't get it yet? Have faith in God. His words wouldn't fail. It says, truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain. You, know, you might expect him to say, if I say to this mountain, but he says, whoever. Whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass. It will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, Believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven, your Father also who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. I think the main point there is the very first part of the the text. Have faith in God. That that should affect our praying. That's the the framework within the way we should pray, the frame of mind and heart in which we are to, to pray. We are to trust that whatever the Lord has said, whatever, whether it's a threat of judgment or a promise of blessing, it will come to pass. Take God at his word in all things and at all times. That's how we're to rightly understand his words about prayer in the verses that follow here. This brief section on prayer. The passage is not a blank check. Many in our day and previous days have abused this passage to no end. The people that teach what we call the prosperity gospel or the name it, claim it, Folks, they use this passage and abuse it just like those priests and scribes abuse the temple. They abuse these words. These words of Jesus about prayer have to be understood in light of everything else he says about prayer in the scriptures. You can't yank them out of context and hold them in isolation and say, yeah, but Jesus said, whatever I want, I can have. If I ask and don't doubt. If I have enough faith, whatever I want, God has to give me. That's not what this text uh, is saying. In the, in the Lord's Prayer, he teaches us about prayer, and we should take that into account as well. We have to have faith in God, for sure. We have to pray in faith. We must believe that Christ, in Christ, God happily hears and answers the prayers of his people. We have to believe that he is a good father who delights to give good gifts to his children. Jesus says this in Matthew 7, verse 11. He says, If you then who are what? Evil. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good, give good gifts to those who ask him? That doesn't mean whatever you ask, God's going to give. What good parent among you ever, even if you could, would have given your kids anything they asked all the time? I know you kids sitting here thinking, I wish my parents, my mom and my dad would give me whatever I want anytime I want. 
uh, that wouldn't really be good for you. Plus, we can't afford it. So no. Um, But, you know, we often ask God for things that aren't good for us. We just do. We want what we want. But how many, you know, there's an old, I won't sing it, an old Garth Brooks song about unanswered prayer. Uh, Well, there's answers. God just says no sometimes. And how many things have you asked for? You You should really thank God that he doesn't say yes every time you pray. There are things you have asked for and I have asked for that are not good for us, that are not, would not be glorifying to Christ in our lives for we to have them. He knows what's best. Father knows best. Well, our Heavenly Father knows best, and he delights to give good gifts to his children. So we should pray in faith and, say, and know that whatever God decides to answer, yes, no, or wait, or maybe, it's for the best. He knows exactly what we need and what his church needs. And so you and I must pray We also must never forget our need for forgiveness and our need to forgive one another. Jesus taught that in the Lord's Prayer as well. In other words, we aren't to be vengeful in our hearts or in our prayers, but we have to be quick to forgive. The fig tree, the keys of the kingdom, in another passage of scripture, are not to be taken as an excuse to try to call down fire from heaven upon our enemies. That wasn't what Jesus was doing with the fig tree. He wasn't rashly calling a curse on a tree. And may our Lord Jesus Christ, may he work in us by his Holy Spirit that you and I might be, as a church, a house of prayer for all the nations. And may he increase our faith in God, as he says, have faith in God that you and I might pray and pray rightly. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this text that, that can be a little jarring, but that reminds us that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he is the the King of kings and Lord of lords, the one with the name above all names, the one to whom all authority in heaven and on earth has been given, and that he rules over all things for the sake of his church, and we give you praise for that. We praise you that he is even now seated at your right hand, uh, far above all power and authority, and that he is the one who is ruling all things for our benefit. He is interceding as our high priest at your right hand, that our salvation can never, never be threatened, because the one with all authority is the one ruling all things for our benefit. We thank you for this truth. We thank you that, that uh, for the, the promises in your word. We thank you that, that uh, we can look forward to the judgment of your son when he comes back because his judgment is for our benefit, that he will make all the wrongs right, that all of the things done in persecution of, of, of your people throughout the ages will be made right once again. And we ask that you would grant us as a church, we pray that you would grant us repentance were needed, that you would make us a house of prayer for all the nations, uh, that you would correct our faults and and renew us back to what you would have us to be. Make us a a place, and we pray for our fellow, our sister churches as well, that you would do the same. Make your churches houses of prayer for all the nations, that people might come and hear your gospel and be drawn uh, to the one in whom is eternal life, Jesus Christ, your son, for it's in his name we pray. Amen.